And good morning, everyone. And uh, so glad to see everyone here. And uh, it's glad that uh, we have an opportunity to continue to open up uh, the book of Daniel. This is our, uh, I have chapter eight. And then today we will complete eight chapters of 12, which if I, my math is correct, that's two thirds of the book as of today. So um, it's been uh, for me uh, an enlightening, spiritually enlightening, because uh, as many times as you read a book or a particular passage, there's always something new about you could find in the scripture. And I found that in Daniel eight. I have to admit to you that I, when I selected Daniel eight, I kind of looked at it from a historical perspective because I'm a former history teacher. And um, some of the names that, of course, surface as a result of this particular chapter I was familiar with. And quite honestly, I thought it would be an easy ride for me. And it was nothing of the sort. Because this is, although it'll appear like it's a history lesson, it's really not a history lesson. It's God's lesson to us. It's what God has to tell us. And if you think of if you think there are times when I'm getting to be too historical and think about history, just break up the word history into two words and make it a compound word or try to make it a compound word. And it's really his story. And uh, that's what it's about, this whole chapter. It's about God's revelation to Daniel and God's message to us through Daniel. Um, that said, let's uh, just bow for prayer quickly. Our God, our Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thy word is truth. We thank you for the message that you're giving us today and the messages you will continue to give us through this wonderful book of Daniel. We ask that uh, each and every one here would open their hearts to it, particularly me, Father, and uh, what you would have for us as we go forward. And we pray this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so... If I asked you to give me a quick definition of the word prophecy, you might tell me it's a prediction of something that's going to come, and that's true. But if you take biblical prophecy, prophecy, if you just put the word biblical prophecy, it's predicting future events with absolute accuracy, absolute accuracy. Everything that has ever been written in this book that has been, as far as prophecy is concerned, and this is a holy book, has come true, everything. And there are some other things that are about to come true. I would trust the track record. Those of you who are into the stock, you have a broker and you trust the broker to get you into certain stocks or whatever. And, you, and maybe sometimes that doesn't work out, but you still trust them. Okay. Or a doctor. You have a doctor that, you know, you trust that doctor, he or she for years. And then they put you on a protocol. They put you in a particular um, medication, all of a sudden it doesn't work, but you don't get rid of the doctor. You still, you know what? It's a proven track record. I'm going to continue to keep this doctor. So why wouldn't we continue to keep listening to the prophecies of our, of our God, who is a hundred percent accurate, 100%. So God's word to us is his revelation. You know why unless it comes, it, this is going to be true. It's because it's God's revelation to us. It's not man's weak attempt to prognosticate, to hypothesize, uh, to predict based on a number of issues. or uh, It's not like an SAT question where you have multiple choices 
you know, that, that's man's attempt to do that uh, or, or based on best, best feelings. Uh, so God moved Daniel and the other prophets. They were divinely inspired to write what they wrote. And it's really a message for us today. And the other thing is that, you know, in chapter eight, God gives Daniel yet this new vision about some future events. If we look at the first 22 verses of this particular book, chapter eight, it's come true. It's part of history. There are some verses later on, verses 23 through 27, that point to another particular prophecy that's about to take place. And so uh, it's also been proven by uh, secular events in history. Also, Daniel uh, wrote of these events of world leaders. These were powerful individuals. They moved the world map. They moved countries. They moved peoples. Um, And this is all the way from the time of the Babylonian captivity up to and including the second coming uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that said, I'd like to just kind of reiterate some of the things that have been said before, because of course there might be some people who aren't here uh, earlier. The first chapter up to verse chapter two, verse three is written in Hebrew. Why? Because it it dealt with the Hebrew people, the fall of Jerusalem and into the Babylonian uh, captivity. They were deported, the Jewish people, but from chapter two, verse four, all the way to chapter seven, verse 28, the language changes. It goes to Aramaic. And why Aramaic? Because it concerns really the details of the Gentiles, those who Gentile powers and those who were Gentile rule and the message there, the time of the Gentiles. But now, starting with chapter eight and from now until the end of the chapter, it reverts back to Hebrew. Why? Because the focus is going to be back on the Jewish people. It's going to be back on Israel. It's going to be back on God's plan for Israel and about how the Gentile powers would affect Israel, thus a return to Hebrew. Our brother Rich last week talked about the fact that chapters one through six is more of a personal narrative of Daniel uh, when he was under Babylonian rule. And the last seven through 12 chapters, it's about prophetic events. And of course, you see here, we have the, the record of, um, just a quick outline, uh, the record of the revelation of Daniel's vision, the setting where it takes place, the substance of that vision, in other words, some of the information that's given. And then the second part is an inter- inter- interpretation of the vision, which deals with chapter 8, verses 15 through 27, or the scope or the extent, uh, if you will. Now, Daniel received some... Uh, information on chapter two about the first vision from God and where he interpreted the statue. Uh, if we can uh, go to the next slide, we can see that. And, uh, and of course he was given this, um, actually Nebuchadnezzar was given that vision and God, of course, through Daniel uh, was able to interpret that for him. Then in chapter seven, if we can go to the next slide. Um, and of course you could see some of the, uh, there's the statue and all the empires that are going to take place are part of that. And all this is part of history. It's 100% correct. And the next slide, if we would, Kevin, thank you. Just another way of looking at it. Take a look at those um, particular empires, starting with Babylon, all the way to and up to including uh, the the rise of the church. Uh, But you can see it. There's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the next one, if you would, Kev, thanks. That's chapter seven. That was the vision that was given to Daniel in chapter seven, in which there was a lion, uh, a bear, a leopard, 
and some scary, not describable, terrifying figure with 10 horns on the top. And of course, now we get into chapter eight and chapter eight deals. I think when, when Daniel got these visions, he didn't know exactly who these empires were, nor did he have any, any idea about who these individuals were. But what is chapter eight going to revolve around? It's going to revolve around um, the second and the third empire. So if we can just open our Bibles and just, move, just read chapter eight, because it, you really need to look at the whole chapter in order to get an understanding of the revelation that God had given him. And in chapter 8, I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, It starts with, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that I had already prepared to me, appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ule Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could be rescued from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And I was thinking about this. Suddenly, a goat with a prominent horn between the eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram. I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground, trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of the rebellion, the hosts of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and in truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there there before me stood one who looked like a a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ule calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and he raised me to my feet. And he said to me, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. 
The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this, his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of his reign, of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation, will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, and he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. That is quite, quite a revelation when you think about it, what Daniel is talking about. So in chapter eight, of course, he's talking to us. And as far as the vision is concerned, where did it take place? Well, it took place. He's actually being transported, if you will, into a future time. Now, I don't think it, he's, he's there physically being carried. I think it's something that happened with Ezekiel, where he's transported in spirit. Uh, that happened with Ezekiel when it was, um, concerned him being transported into Jerusalem. You probably have read about that. Also, the Apostle John in Revelation 17, 17, 3, where he is transported into the desert. Um, he says, where he says, an angel carried me away um, in the spirit, in the desert. But the exact geographic location is revealed to Daniel here. It's uh, Shushan. Uh, if we go to the next uh, slide, Kev. It's Shushan, and that's the Babylonian uh, captivity. Um, I believe, yeah, this is Babylon. And, of course, when they took, took the Jews and deported the Jews, that's all of their territory there. But if you take a look at the next one, there's, a, there's just an aerial view of all the tech, um, territory that Babylon had, all the way from Babylon all the way to uh, Jerusalem. And the next one, this deals with the Medes and the Persians and the amount of territory they had. Now, if you take a look in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see Susa, right near the word Babylonia, right on top of there. And this is where he's transported to, in the banks of the Ule River. And Susa was the ancient capital of Elam. It was about 250 miles east of uh, Babylon. And, of course, he's carried away there. I have to understand, this Babylon has not fallen yet. This is a prediction. It's not fallen. It's in the third year of the king of Belshazzar. In fact, uh, Shushan was just a, a small city-state at the time of this uh, prediction, this revelation. But it would later grow to become the capital of Persia. So in a sense, it's really 12 years until uh, Belshazzar's death and the end of any Babylonian domination that would take place. So when we set up the substance and finding out about the two horns, you know, how did they get all this territory? How did it come to be? Well, they defeated the Babylonians. And um, it was under, and there's, of course, these two horns. One is larger than the other, longer than the other. One, the smaller one is King Darius of the Medes. The, the larger one is King Cyrus 
of the Persians. And what they had was basically a coalition of armies here, a coalition of countries to, to do battle against the Babylonians. And um, the extent of their power and their dominance is actually in verse 4, and it's been proven in historical records of history. The description of the, of the power of the ram, no beast could stand against it. No nation, no people could rise up to conquer it. It did as it pleased. There was no rescue. Um, it pushed westward into Libya. You really can't see Libya there, but it would be, uh, if you take a look at Egypt, in and around that area there, okay, and the top there. And uh, it went northward into Asia Minor and it's south as far as Egypt. And the ram was powerful. And when, you know what happens with these nations? When they become powerful, they become arrogant. It's a common trait, just as King Nebuchadnezzar was and Belshazzar was, you know, in the first cha- five chapters of, uh, of Daniel. Uh, interesting. The, why the ram? Well, uh, the emblem of the Second Empire of the Persians, um, it seems to be a ram. Uh, according to a fourth-century historian by the name of Marcellinus, he stated that the rulers and commanders leading the armies of Persia into battle, they wore a ram's head. In fact, a ram was stamped on Persian coins. So there's, there's some evidence there. But it was Cyrus who led the conquest of uh, Babylon in the year 539. So why is that important? Why? It's, it's an historical fact. Well, God used, I, I don't know if this is a stretch, but I'll say it. God used the defeat of the Babylonians for his purpose and glory. Because what did it do? If you take a look at that map, it says the return of the exiles of Judah, right? It allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland. And with them, and Cyrus was very, very, um, um, I, I guess you say kind about this. He allowed them to take with them all of the vessels that, Nebuchadnezzar took away from them when they were under Babylonian um, captivity. And so he allowed them to go back there, rebuild their temple, and, you know, take part in the sacred temple uh, sacrifice. So, and again, is God involved? Is our sovereign God involved in the affairs of men and women in this world and leaders and countries? Does he care? Absolutely, he's involved. And again, he called upon Cyrus to fulfill that. Um, I think he uses Gentile and sometimes rather cruel Gentile powers and rulers to fulfill his purposes, even if it means terrible treatment for the people of Israel uh, to accomplish that. And uh, that's what happened here. I'd like to read a a quote from uh, Lehman Strauss in his book, The Prophecies of Daniel. And he said the following, the sturdy strength of the ram enabled it to thrust an enemy from its path but even such a mighty empire as Persia must give way to a stronger one. So in chapter two, we saw this image uh, of a thigh of brass. And then chapter seven, we see this uh, swift leopard with four heads and four wings. Now in chapter eight, we see this goat all point to the same country. It's Greece. Now, how do we know it's Greece? Just as we knew about the Medes and the Persians, we didn't have to go too far. We read it. We read it in eight, chapter 8, verse 20. That tells us about who that was. Well, in chapter 8, verse 21, he told Daniel, actually Gabriel, that this is Greece. So after the ram goes on its rather treacherous rampage, 
suddenly from the West appears this goat. And it's not just any goat. It's a very angry goat. And it runs so fast that it hardly even, it doesn't even touch the ground. I think it's a metaphor for how quickly the armies of Greece actually went in and conquered the Persians. And they did it with such swiftness and uh, devastation. But you have to understand this too. Like the uh, Medo-Persia before it, Greece didn't exist in this great power at the time. It was just a number of city-states, you know, city-states like, um, like Sparta and Athens and Corinth. That's all they were. It wasn't this power. So here's the prediction that's going to happen years later, you know, a couple of hundred years later. And the most important thing is that there is this notable horn between its eyes, this notable horn. Um, just a little bit of a biblical um, not prophecy, but some of the, some of the things that um, some of the writers say um, with secular history, you know, the secular history proved biblical prophecy. Lewis Talbot, in his book, The Prophecies of Daniel in Light of the Past, Present, and Future Events, he actually wrote this in 1936. Listen to what he said. We don't need secular history to vindicate and verify the inspired word of God, but our faith is confirmed and God is glorified by the annals of uninspired men as they bear record to the facts which God wrote before they even came to pass. So this prophecy, it's going to emphasize a war between two powers, the second and third empires, uh, a conflict between East versus West, Europe versus Asia, if you will. And then there's this prominent horn. If we got the next uh, slide, Kev. This prominent horn is going to uh, go on the scene, come on the scene. And who does he represent? He represents this young military general, uh, an excellent military tactician whose military strategies were studied in many war colleges uh, and still today. He is Alexander the Great. Now, if you've had a world history class and back way back when for some of you like me, or uh, maybe not too young, uh, not too old. You, you remember Alexander the Great. And uh, he was the son of Philip, the king of Macedonia. And one of his uh, traits, one of his military trademarks, if you will, was his ability to take his army, strike quickly, strike with great force, strike decisively, devastate them. And uh, hence the four wings of that leopard, you know, the quickness there. Uh, maybe there's another metaphor. Um, some say he conquered this area. And as uh, Kevin, you can go back just for a sec in this area. Uh, let's, let's go forward. Keep going. Uh, there we go. All right. So this is this territory. Uh, some say he, he conquered it in less than 12 years. Some say as little as six, depending on what historian you, you have. He defeated the Persians, and the last battle was, uh, I think it was Gogamila, and that was the end of the, uh, as far as the uh, Persians were concerned. And why, why is Gogamila kind of, you know, why did I bring that word in, uh, that, that, that place in? It's actually near the ancient ruins of Nineveh. If you, if you read the Bible, you know where Nineveh was. Um, just a quick side note about Alexander the Great. He conquers all this land. He tried to actually go into the Indus Valley in India. They were on, in battle for 12 years. The, the Greek soldiers didn't have the heart. He came back. Um, 
But one of the things he was about to do was he was about to uh, go into Jerusalem. He was about to conquer that area. Now, the renowned historian, Jewish historian, Josephus, some of you might be familiar with him. He tells the story that Alexander the Great came to invade Jerusalem one day. And he was met outside the city by the high priest. His name was Jedua. And Jedua was dressed in his high priestly garments. And he spoke to Alexander the Great. And what he told him was that there was a prophet by the name of Daniel who predicted that you would conquer this area and you would conquer it 225 years beforehand. And then Jedua proceeds to, um, to read chapter 8 to him. And when he does, and after it's done, Alexander the Great, according to Josephus, fell at his feet. And as a result, Israel, Jerusalem was not attacked, and it was spared. So just a little side note about that. Um, this large horn that's broken. Who can break this horn? In other words, who that large horn is, is Alexander the Great. He's powerful. The then known world is under his complete domination. Tradis, tradition states that when he had no more, we probably heard this in your history class. When he had no more worlds to conquer, he sat down and he cried. All right. That's, that's the old tradition that we, we heard. Um, so who can break him? Well, here's what happened. Suddenly in June of 323 BC in Babylon, Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Some historians say 32. Um, some believe he was given to drink, but he died of a fever. Some believe he may have been poisoned. At any rate, conquering all these empires, he now is gone. He is off the world scene. He's 33. And as a result, four notable horns, according to the scripture, toward the four winds of heaven, chapter 8, verse 8, rise. Now, this corresponds with chapter 7 uh, in the vast Greek empire. Because, Kevin, we go to the next slide. Uh, that's the Roman Empire. You see how much territory they conquered. Look at that. Next slide. Look at how much they, they conquered, the, Rome, the Romans. All right, that, we saw that in chapter 7. And next slide. There it is. Now, as a result, he got this vast empire. You see it there. Okay. Only one problem. Alexander doesn't have an heir to the throne. So what, they, what, what happened, what did happen, was that his territory was divided really in, amongst his four generals. Uh, you see Cassander all the way to the west there, or to the left. You see Lysimachus up a little bit on top of him. Antigonus was later on, but the, the four were Seleucus all the way to the right. You see to the east where Susa is and the Tigris River, and then Ptolemy. And the Ptolemy, they were all dynasties. Ptolemy is in um, the uh, Egypt area in northern Africa. Uh, Lysimachus is really where, where Turkey is today, and uh, Cassander is where uh, Macedonian Greece is. Um, so God foreknew, and he allowed this Greek domination, if you will, to exist. But one of the things I will say about Alexander the Great, what he did, one of the things he did is he tried to unify, unify this whole area. And he tried to unify it with, through law, through Greek art, literature, science, um, culture. And he allowed his conquered peoples to keep their culture. But what he did was he infused 
the Greek influence. In fact, it's known as the Hellenistic Empire, if you will. The word Hellenistic really means Greek-like. And so one of the things, that, of course, he tried to unify that this, all this whole territory is with language. You say, well, okay, so that's a noble event, and et cetera. Think about this. It's Greek. What was the New Testament written in? The original New Testament. It was Greek. So I always can't help it. I'm trying to connect dots and get into the mind of God, which you can't do, and thinking, you know, maybe there was a purpose behind that, a certain a purpose. But back to our four generals that are, that are there. Um, they never measure up, as the Bible just said, we just read, they never measure up to the greatness of Alexander the Great. They never measure up in terms of power, in terms of influence. Um, but another horn, a little horn rises up out of those four horns. And those four horns are representative of those four generals right there. Um, it's uh, not the horn of chapter seven. That horn comes in the fourth empire, which is the Roman empire, a revised Roman empire. The little horn in chapter eight that we read about was prophetical uh, and now part of history. The little horn in chapter seven is prophetical, but yet to come. So here's this little horn coming out of the third empire and we see what he's like we read about it he became great and powerful and his kingdom kept growing it moved from this to the south in egypt to the east in babylon and toward the beautiful land what's the beautiful land what's the glorious land that's israel that's palestine and so who is he he comes out of the seleucus dynasty you see uh, seleucus all the way to the right there uh, down below in that green area, comes out of that area. He's Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Uh, Kevin, if we can just go with the next. Um, you see those coins there. And on one side of the coin is the picture of Antiochus. Antiochus on the left, on the, on the other, on the bottom of that coin would be something known as um, Antiochus Epiphanes God manifest. Um, the word epiphanies means glorious one. Sometimes it means illustrious one. Never. It, the point is, during his reign, he thought of himself as God or a God. Those who had to live through his reign called him Antiochus Epiphanes or Epipomanes. The word Epipomanes means furious or the madman. And he comes to power in around 175 BC. He is diabolical. He is diabolical in his hatred of the Jew. He is anti-Semitic to the core. He is a monster, evil, vicious, cruel. He hated the Jew. He hated the temple and he hated his God. He assaulted Jerusalem. And in three days, he killed 40,000 Jews. He took an equal number of 40,000 into slavery. He slaughtered millions, I would think, thousands, multitudes, let's say, uh, without mercy. We have an understanding of that when we think of Adolf Hitler, all right? The understanding of the, of the cruelty that can take place. But probably his most egregious act besides that uh, took place in 168 B.C. Because in 168 B.C., B.C., he desecrated the temple. And what did he do? How did he desecrate the temple? He sacrificed a pig, a giant sow, 
on the altar of the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat is located. Then he takes a broth made of blood and he sprinkles it on it and around the temple. You know, the Bible calls that the first abomination that causes desolation. He carried off the golden candlesticks, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the other temple vessels. He destroyed the sacred books of the law. We read in our, in our, in our Bibles, he cast truth to the ground. Truth comes from the word of God, the book of the law at the time, right? He set up an altar to worship uh, Jupiter. He thought of himself as a reincarnation of Jupiter, and he made people worship him. He trampled on God's people. And just a reminder, those who persecute the people of God, they persecute God himself. He took away the daily and morning evening sacrifice. Why is that important? Because that's where the Jews kept their constant communion with God through the temple sacrifices. He set up in his own image in the temple. And with every victory and every pri- his pride increased, he claimed honors that only the Messiah would have, the Messiah of Israel. And he was allowed to prosper, and he was allowed to succeed. Why? Because of God's permissive will and nothing more. Nothing more. And we know and from the scripture, it says, pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. How long would he be allowed to reign? We read in our Bibles. There's this conversation, it seems, between two angels. And they ask, how long will this person reign and cause such desolation and destruction. And I have to say this, do we not use those same words today? I do. How long? I ask, how long, Lord, is evil and corruption and crime and graft and extortion and misery and mayhem and murder? How long is, are we going to suffer and see this in our world? How long will sin continue? When are you coming for us? Jimmy talked about it today in the breaking of bread. Because we yearn for the rapture, we who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We yearn for a future time when Christ will rule over this earth, a new heaven and a new earth. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we, after that, we who are alive, will be left in our left. We're caught up together to meet him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, to ever be with the Lord. That's what we hope to do. And so we utter those same words. How long? Well, he gives us the answer. He says 2,300 days. Now, this is kind of a, this is tenuous at best, but I'm just going to give the thought. If you take those 2,300 days, literally as 24-hour days, that period would be between six and seven years. That's the approximate time that Antiochus reigned. And his wicked persecution of the Jews took place from the time he desecrated the temple to the time that the temple was cleansed comes to 2,300 days. I don't think it's an accident. And you remember how that, that occurred, how that rededication took place. Uh, the Apocrypha books of Maccabees 1 and 2. You probably have, have heard of a man by the name and his family and a man by the name of Judas Maccabees. It was Judas Maccabees who led this uh, invasion, and he drove out the Syrian army from Jerusalem. It took place actually on December the 25th, 165 BC. And then he cleansed the temple, he purified and rededicated the temple. Antiochus uh, had desecrated it and he had, he had defiled. And you know about that, that holiday, if you will. It's, um, it's commemorated, it's celebrated each year in the Jewish faith. It's Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication. 
Antiochus was later defeated in battle in 164 BC, and he died. Reminder, and I got this from one of the writers. He said, God has a timetable, and any trouble destined for this world or for God's people has a time limit. God is always on the throne. And so we get to the interpretation. Daniel is a man of great integrity. We saw that all in these previous chapters. He is a man of great intellect. He was a man who was given great insight by God to interpret and to uh, give an understanding of dreams and visions. But here, at this time in chapter 8, he seems to be a little puzzled. He seems to be quite upset. There's consternation here. And so what does God do? He sends the angel Gabriel. First time, an angel, the archangel, is sent in the Old Testament. It's talked about, as a matter of fact. Gabriel whose name means the man of God, or God is powerful, or hero of God. And he informs him and talks about the appointed time of the end. So we have this near future, this first prophecy, which we see comes true with all of these kingdoms, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the four, um, we see these four horns. But it wasn't the final end of things to come. It wasn't the final end. There is, I, I like to think of it that there were end times preceding the first advent, the, uh, preceding the birth of Christ. And then there's going to be a future time and other events that are going to take place after that, that he talks about. And I think it's very important. The last verses speak of a future end, a time of wrath. He said at the appointed time of the end. Perhaps this was a partial fulfillment with the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. But it points to another horn. It's a picture. I think Antiochus Epiphanes is a type, a picture of one yet to come. He's called the man of sin. And he'll have the power of Satan to energize him and to control this world. I'm speaking about the Antichrist. He's going to magnify himself as God. He's going to claim the honors that are only due to the Messiah Jesus, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did. He's a hater of the Jews. The Bible says he's a stern-faced king. In the King James Version, it says he's a king of fierce countenance. He's a master of intrigue. He utilizes tactics like deceit, deception, disguise. And let's face it, this is what the world wants. What's going to seem like world peace, like harmony, like tranquility and prosperity under his reign for the first three and a half years, and it's called the, the tri- Great Tribulation Period, that seven-year period, for those first three and a half years, that's what you're going to have on this earth. But then, in the next three and a half years, it's going to turn into calamity. It's going to turn into chaos. There's going to be collapse, and there's going to be catastrophe. Kevin, just, if we could just show the next. Just, again, it's just a parallel. But take a look at these striking parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes and Antichrist. All right, If you take a look at them. He begins modestly, increases his power and influence. He conquers much. And there are other verses that connect Daniel with Revelation. Uh, He magnifies himself. He's a master of deceit. He offers a false peace program. False peace program. He's probably going to make a little, I would think, a, a peace pact with the nation of Israel at that time. They both are going to put their images in the temple. They hate and they persecute the Jew. You think about the Jewish people have gone through such tough times and about to. Go, and there's going to be some future times. And for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, he profanes the temple. He's energized by Satan. Kevin, next, uh, yep. Active within the Middle East for seven years. 
blasphemes God, boasts of great things, puts his image in, the, in their temple, both of them. They impose their own religion. They'll oppose, but they will be opposed by a believing remnant. God always has a remnant. And that believing remnant, of course, the believing Jews who know the Lord. And he will be utterly destroyed by the Lord God eventually. That's, that's his end. That would be his end. The Antichrist, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all destined for the lake of fire. All destined for the lake of fire. But I look at some other verses in Revelation 13, 7. He's going to cause craft to prosper in his hand. No one's going to be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. He's going to magnify himself in his heart. He's going to have the pride of Satan. Uh, by peace, he shall destroy many in Revelation 6. You know, he's going to come in gentle like a lamb. He's going to go out with the ferocity of a, of a lion. The rider of the white horse in Revelation 6, what's it followed by? The red horse of war. That's who he is. He's going to stand up against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? That's the Lord Jesus. One of the first marks of the beast of Revelation 13 is that he is against Christ. He is against Christ. So in the last verses, uh, Gabriel tells Daniel it's a time of 2,300 evenings and mornings to seal up the vision. Uh, not seal it up so that people would know about it. It's just that seal it up, that's all I have to tell you, in a sense, and that it would be filled years later. And as we read, Daniel is overcome. He's physically sick. He's physically upset, emotionally and psychologically, and he's, he lay ill for several days. Um, I can't help but think he probably was ill thinking about his, he loved his, his nation. He loved his fellow Jew and he loved his, his nation. I, I can't help but think he was probably looking into the future and thinking they're going to go through such terrible time. You ever know, you know, this as a human, as a human being, when you know, someone's going to go through a tough time, um, you, you, your heart is for them. I mean, I had a knee replacement. Even Chris just had knee replacements. When I knew they were going in for that operation, I went, Oh, Oh, I don't want to go through that again. All these, you know, and you, you get in prayer for those folks, right? And pray for their recovery because I know you know what's coming. And I think that's what's happening with uh, Daniel. So what do we take away from this uh, chapter? Uh, just a few things and we'll, we'll finish. Um, and that is um, certainly no world leader is going to thwart God's plan. I'm going to use a word that Alan Wilkes used in the first message eight years ago. And he had mentioned this. God's plan is, and I like the word, inexorably being carried out. And it is. He's preparing wonderful things who know him, who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And my question is, do you know of him or do you know him? You can't just know of him. I know of, in a sense, many people. I know of them. I don't know who they really are, right? You know that. You have to know him. And that comes from a personal relationship. Second, you've heard this expression many times. We may not know in total what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. God is in complete control of this world. He always has. He always will. He rules uh, as a sovereign God. All world decisions, events, empires, leaders, kingdoms, commonwealths, countries, nothing goes past his desk, if I can use that, okay, without him knowing it. All right. He's in. We may not know the exact details, the exact moment of these future events, but we can rest in the blessed assurance that God is working for our good, the good of the church and the good of Israel. 
Next, true versus false prophets. When a true prophet gave the revelation to the people, sometimes they faced great persecution because it wasn't what the king wanted to hear or the people wanted to hear. The false prophets always sugarcoated things or told them things that they shouldn't have. And what happened? The people that they were being told continued to sin, continued to have a broken relationship with God, never coming into a right relationship with the Savior. All right, I, I, I would say this. That said, may we never cower from telling the truth about God's plan for salvation. When people talk about, you know, at the end of their lives, and, you know, is there a heaven, is there a hell, if there's, you know, is, is there eternal life? Tell them the way how, how it has to be. God said, I am the way to truth. Jesus said, I'm the way to truth and life. No one comes from the Father but through me. And there it is. It's a simple thing, but never cower from it. Next, we tend to think of the end times as something way down the road, something that's in a way distant future. And it may be. We don't know that. But let's keep in mind this. One crisis, one event, one major incident can change the world quickly. And it can set the course of the world in a completely uh, direction from where it was going. It can happen like that. It can happen in the blink of an eye. Take COVID. In January of 2020, hardly anybody was talking about it. But by April 2020, the entire world was at its mercy. Things change rapidly. And so since things change rapidly, the question is this. Suppose things change in a second or let's say a minute from now. Can you honestly say that you will be caught up in the clouds one day, that you will forever be with the Lord, that, or will you remain on earth and have to go through a great tribulation period? Because if you do, what lies ahead, it's not the best that yet to, yet to come. It's the worst that is yet to come. Um, the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. It's, I, I, I'm not using scare tactics. It's God's truth. It's a reality. It's God's truth. It's not a Christian myth. Um, this is going to happen. And so I would implore those who are listening today, if you haven't, turn your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and he'll give you a new life and, of course, an eternal life with him. And um, God is not done with, with Israel either. You know, we kind of think that God has abandoned the nation. Um, true, they are back in the land, many in unbelief. True, there are Jews throughout the world who have not recognized Jesus as Messiah. And it's unfortunate because if the great tribulation comes, they may have to, they're going to go through that time of Jacob's trouble uh, before they recognize Jesus as Messiah. Um, And also others who would have to do that. And so that's why you see, I put down this um, particular um, verse here. Um, Let me read this one first. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out in the house of Israel, the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. God is not done with Israel. They will recognize the Messiah for sure. It's been said that God knows our future, knows the future better than we can ever know our past, right? I've heard someone say that here. So as we go forward and we put our trust in him, he's promising a great glorious future. First Corinthians 2.9, we're going to leave with this, but it's written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. It's going to be wonderful things. We can't even imagine what those things are going to be, but he's preparing them for us. 
And finally, look at Daniel. He was sick. He was overcome with grief, probably, and, and, and lay in bed for several days. But then what happened? The Bible says, and we've read that, then I got up and I went about the king's business. Are we going about the king's business? Are we up? Are we going about his business? Let's pray. Our God, our Father, again, we thank you again for the great God that you are, a God who loved us so much that you gave us your dear son to die for our sins and for our salvation, one we did not deserve, but because of your great love, mercy, and grace you bestow on us, and how grateful we are for that. We thank you for this book, this chapter, Daniel 8. Thank you for the uh, events that took place and the events that was, which will take place. We thank you for the you love us so much that you give us warnings and uh, remind us of what's ahead. And yet, Father, we, um, we rest in the assurance that we will be safe. We look forward to the day when we will uh, forever be with you. We thank you again for this time that we're spending and have spent. We pray for traveling mercies to our homes and help us, Father, to go about your business. We pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.